0: Welcome to the Gut Doctor podcast, where Dr. Neil Parikh describes GI disorders and answers common questions related to the GI tract. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back, everybody, to the Gut Doctor podcast. Today, I'm joined by Leslie Brown, a physician assistant with Connecticut GI. And today, Leslie and I are going to talk about diverticulitis, which is something that We see pretty commonly both in the outpatient setting and the inpatient setting, and I bet a lot of our patient listeners will be curious to learn more about. Leslie, thank you for joining me.
1: Yes, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to share with your listeners information on this very common topic. Um, First, let me start by defining colonic diverticulitis, which essentially is acute inflammation of colonic diverticuli. Uh, this is gen- generally categorized as either complicated or uncomplicated, and we'll kind of get into the the breakdown of that uh, further in the podcast.
0: Great. Now, I guess taking a step back, um, what what are what are diverticuli? Why does it happen?
1: Um, so, to answer your question, we must first explain how diverticuli form. Okay. Pressure built fresh, pressure buildup within the colon. Um, wall over time creates small to large colonic wall herniations or diverticuli. Um, There are several theories as to why diverticulitis occurs. Um, Some of these theories include genetic predisposition, uh, gut microbial dysbiosis, you know, like not having good bacteria in the intestines, and over time that leads to a chronic low-grade inflammatory process, um, neural um, degradation within the colonic wall. So uh, over time, the nerves in the wall of the colon don't function as well. Um, and as a result, you have abnormal pressure distributions within the wall of the colon. Um, and then another theory would be trauma. So having hard stools that subsequently get stuck in these pockets, causing breakdown of the colonic wall uh, through a process of um, Ischemic changes um, that lead to necrosis, infection, and ultimately focal uh perforation.
0: Oh wow. Okay. So there's a lot of different theories. Uh, for our non-medical listeners, is it fair to just say that on some level it's a pressure situation, right? Like you're saying, you know, whether it's you know, stretching or pressure to the wall, and you get this bulge that forms. Um, you mentioned ischemia, it's just for our non-medical listeners, that's low blood flow to the area. Uh, that can also be playing a role.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So there's a lot of different theories. I mean, I think the most commonly accepted theory um, is that you have trauma uh, to the pockets in the colon, and ultimately um, that leads to inflammation, infection, um, and, and patients presenting with symptoms.
0: Now, di- the presence of diverticula or diverticulosis um, is is common but not everybody will then get diverticulitis or inflammation i always have to tell my patients after a colonoscopy okay i found diverticulosis but not the itis who who's at risk for diverticulitis
1: so while the answers can vary widely um diverticulitis is most common um, in those that are older than 60 okay um, because, you know, as you, as you get older, there's a lot of wear and tear on the body. Um, the wear and tear on the colon is no different. Um, diverticulitis is more common in tobacco smokers, um, in obese populations, overweight populations, um, persons who use certain medications, okay, including things like ibuprofen or aspirin, NSAIDs is what um, we generally call that class. Um, any, anyone who uses steroids chronically, prednisone um, is a big one, uh, very commonly uh, used for a lot of different conditions, um, and also um, those who use pain medication chronically. It, 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 pain medication, uh, we know that can, it can be effective for, obviously, chronic pain conditions, but it can also cause chronic constipation. Um, Interestingly enough, within the last decade, there has been an increasing incidence of colonic diverticulitis in younger adults, or those that are younger uh, than 50 years of age, Um, and we've seen sort of a shift uh, in gender where males are more commonly affected than females uh, in those younger than, than 50 years of age
0: that's interesting i didn't know about the prednisone and I, I anecdotally i've definitely seen the younger shift do we know why that's happening why why younger patients are getting it or is it still unknown
1: um it's not clear it's not clear there have been a lot of um you know newer theories um i think that this is an evolving subject i think um you know with time um more information will come out but it's it's still not clear
0: so what are the common symptoms if you get diverticulitis, what should our patients be on the lookout for?
1: Absolutely. So um, with diverticulitis, you have a a broad range with regards to symptoms, but the most common symptoms include abdominal pain. Um, The pain can either be mild and intermittent um, or a a constant intense pressure, stabbing pain. Um, Usually the pain is associated with um nausea low grade temperature or fever um oftentimes you'll have bowel changes uh including constipation less so diarrhea
0: okay so obviously a variety of symptoms but you know pain and fever um are probably the two that stand out the most now i was always under the impression and you know it's been a bit since i was in medical school and residency but the management used to just be You give antibiotics. Now, I'm under the impression that may be changing a little bit. Is that correct?
1: That is changing um, because as we look into the benefits of antibiotics and also the risks, um, we're finding that um, a lot of patients, especially those um, that come in with acute diverticulitis that are in low risk outpatient populations, let's say for example this is your first time having Uh, diverticulitis, you have very mild symptoms in terms of your medical history. Um, maybe you have blood pressure issues. Uh,
0: so let's see that's, that's interesting with the antibiotics. So if we're not going to antibiotics, what about diet? What diet do you recommend?
1: Um, so with regards to acute diverticulitis, um, the diet can vary quite a bit. Um, If you're having if you have a patient that has or if a patient is having severe pain, um, you definitely want to dial back on the diet as much as possible. Um, And what I mean by that is no solid food, clear liquids. um, You want to maintain hydration. um, But if you have a patient that has pain that is mild um, and generally, you know, not too bothersome, but it's it's there. Um, you can have the patient try uh, a soft, low residue, low fat diet. Um, typically, if it's something like mashed potatoes, it, it's very um, a simple, it's a simple food, it's a simple starch, very easy to break down uh, for, the, for the colon, um, while the colon uses that time um, to uh, repair itself and resolve the inflammation. Um, you might want to also consider. The benefits of lactose-free dairy and probiotic-rich foods, um, probiotic-rich foods uh, are generally anything that's fermented, but yogurt, for example, is a very good option um, in a case like this where you have uh, a very selected diet and um, you have inflammation that would otherwise you know, respond well to, to good uh, bacteria within the gut. So that's pretty much that.
0: So if we go with dietary changes and not antibiotics, um, when do you reassess or do you tell your patients, hey, reach out if so, such and such happens?
1: Um, yeah, that's a great question. So if patients are not treated with antibiotics, we should be very um vigilant, we should be monitoring these patients very closely. Um, you definitely don't want you know several weeks to go by before you're seeing them again. So I would suggest a follow-up within about two to three days um, in the outpatient clinic. Um, if they're doing well um, clinically, you could after that two to three day period then see them again on a weekly basis until the symptoms have resolved. Obviously, if a patient is clinically deteriorating, then in that case, you don't want to chance, you know, um, them having a complication that is subsequently delayed in terms of the management. So you would then proceed with hospital admission for intense observation, antibiotics, fluids, uh, things of that of that nature.
0: Let's talk more about this. So, when do you recommend a patient go to the ER? Say they're on antibiotics and they don't respond. Uh, when do you call it complicated diverticulitis or send the patient to the hospital?
1: Um, So typically you would, would, um, we would start by addressing uh, or defining complicated diverticulitis. So complicated diverticulitis is as its name suggests, diverticulitis that is associated with a complication, okay? Um, There are a number of complications that can occur in diverticulitis involving the colon, including bowel obstruction, okay? Uh, If the inflammation is bad enough, you can have uh, frank perforation. And basically that means just um, where the inflammation is no longer within the colon um, or involving the colon, but is now outside of the colon into the abdomen. Um, and oftentimes patients will present with symptoms of peritonitis, which is just a very rigid abdomen. Um, you can have bleeding um, as a complication of diverticulitis. It's not that common, but it's common enough. Um, you can have fistula formation, which is an abnormal connection between the bowel and other structures, most commonly the bladder. Um, so those are just some of the, the complications that can, that can develop. Um, with regards to when to send a patient to um, the emergency department or considering admission. So if you have a patient um, that has worsening pain, you definitely want to take that seriously. You you don't want to poo-poo it. So you definitely want to say, okay, this is what you looked like when you first came in. All right, you had pain. It's three days later, things should be getting better. Things are not getting better. Things are actually getting worse. So worsening pain, fever, okay? So maybe they had a mild temperature, but their, their, their temperatures is starting to climb. So then that starts to ring alarm bells that something is more uh, something more serious is happening or developing. Bleeding, if they're having any sort of bleeding with diverticulitis, that's atypical. Um, if, if you look at the patient, uh, in the office, and you say, wow, this patient really looks sick. Um, they just look very uh, pale, uh, very um, very uh, lethargic. Um, on their physical examination, uh, they have things like involuntary guarding of the abdomen or going back to that peritonitis picture. Um, on blood work, um, you would look for things like a high white count. Okay. Or leukocytosis, the medical term for that. Um, If they are dehydrated, if they are um, tachycardic, meaning that their heart rate is high, their blood pressure is low, that's called hypotension. um, Or if you get some abdominal imaging, and obviously the abdominal imaging, like a CAT scan shows that there's uh, an abscess or um, an obstruction or some other complication that has occurred.
0: I think this highlights what you just mentioned a a few moments ago that when your patient has diverticulitis, or if you are the patient with diverticulitis, it really requires a close partnership with your provider until the episode resolves. Um, You know, you've just mentioned not only the early symptoms, but the complications and when throughout the whole period, you know, if you're not antibiotics, when to go on antibiotics, or if you're on antibiotics, when they're not working enough. Uh, it really requires close communication between the patient and the provider. Um, I definitely tell my patients, you know, this is a good usage of the the portal to give us updates, whether you're better or worse. Either way, obviously, if you're worse, but even if you're better, up update your provider. Um, now, say the patient res- resolves, um, you're, you're they're in good shape. When do you recommend a surgical consultation, electively, not obviously emergently with the peritonitis or the perforation that's different, but electively, uh, when do you tell your patient, hey, you know, go chat with the surgeon, maybe this needs a little more workup?
1: Right. So that's a great question. Um, So the the thought process with regards to surgical referral has certainly changed uh, over time. Uh, We used to think that after the second or third episode um, consecutively of diverticulite or excuse me, diverticular inflammation within the colon, um, it was time for you to go see a surgeon and undergo uh, elective resection. Now we've kind of gotten away from that. We found that um, there are a lot of risks, obviously, with surgery and a lot of patients if they can forego surgery, they're better off. Um, so that being said, even though there have been a lot of um, advancements within the surgical field and how we uh, would, would um, how the affected area of the colon would be resected including uh, laparoscopy, uh, use of robotic technique, things like that, um, th- there's still risks. So again, because we're seeing that patients are doing okay with just antibiotics, dietary modifications, healthier lifestyles, um, then we don't you know, necessarily recommend that after that second or third episode, they have to go see the surgeon. When we, when we have patients that have uh, chronic pain, that's when we start to think, okay, this patient should be referred to surgeon, to a surgeon for evaluation um, and, and for scheduling of elective resection, because those are the patients that are more than likely, um, going, they're going to go on to have, um, complications. Okay. And then you have other populations of patients that are just high risk. Okay. You don't want to wait for their diverticulitis to become, um, so bad that they wind up perforating. So those populations would be anyone um, with high risk conditions. Um, for example, uh, patients who have, um, who are on immunosuppressants, patients who have um, like a cancer diagnosis, any sort of cancer diagnosis, chemo uh, radiation uh, therapy on board, um, patients who have undergone uh, a transplant and they're chronically on medications that suppress their immune system um, Diabetics I mean a lot of us don't don't think of diabetes as being you know one of these things where I'm at increased risk for complications And in fact, the reality is, is that um, diabetes is one of those conditions that puts a lot of patients at increased risk for complications, not only with diverticulitis, but a number of conditions. Um, So diverticulitis, um, patients who have HIV um, because their body is constantly, um, you know, having to fight with regards to the virus, um, so they're automatically they fall into a category of this is a patient who is at higher risk for complications um, if the diverticulitis continues to be a problem. So these are the pa- these are the people we want to identify, um, and also patients who have chronic kidney disease. Um, and I think that kind of falls hand in hand with the diabetes because we see a lot of um, patients who have both chronic kidney disease and also have diabetes. So that being said, um, there are a lot of common disorders, but then there are a lot of other non not so common disorders, but it's up to us, the clinician, to identify those patients that are at higher risk and to get them over to see the surgeon sooner than later, um, because these are the patients that are gonna go on to have more severe um, diverticulitis. They're gonna have more severe outcomes and death is gonna be more likely in these populations. So we definitely wanna um, be vigilant. And we want to, you know, take a thorough history. We want to identify these risk factors and make the referral sooner than later.
0: I mean, Leslie, that's fantastic. I think you hit it right uh, appropriately that it used to be, oh, after two episodes, you see the surgeon, get the resection done. And now it's a much more of a conversation and there's much more nuances there. So I think what you mentioned there for our our non-medical listeners, um, will resonate very carefully, you know, have a conversation with your, your provider. This is not just a, a black and white algorithm anymore. So Leslie, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Um, I know I appreciated it. I know both our medical and non-medical listeners definitely would have, will have appreciated it. And uh, I look forward to doing this again with you in the future.
1: Thank you. Um, you are so welcome. And I thank you so much for allowing me to be able to um, you know, share information with regards to this very common topic. And hopefully I'll be able to rejoin you again sometime soon with an update.
0: Sounds great. Thanks, Leslie.
1: You're welcome. Take care.